It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello, and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for November 20th, 2021. The connection between martial arts and cycling wasn't very clear to me until my conversation with David Lipscomb. David has a black belt in karate, and he's an elite cyclist, among a lot of other things, such as coaching, and oh yes, a big role in diversity in corporate America. Today, David's business, CIS Cycling NYC, is a system of coaching that is based in a holistic approach to development. David was also tapped by USAC to be the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Organizational Development, and he has a unique perspective on all of it. We're going to speak with David in the second half of the show. I've been holding off on this next conversation until it was safe to talk about everything that happened to extract a group of women and girls from Afghanistan. In several articles that have been written about the daring evacuations, a quote-unquote member of the media was mentioned as someone who started the cry for help, and that person was actually me. I began reaching out to everyone and anyone I knew who might be able to lend a hand when Shannon Galpin started her quest to find ways to move these Afghan women to safety. One of those people at the very beginning was Sylvan Adams, the owner of the Israel Startup Nation Pro Cycling Team. And what he did from the moment I contacted him was, in a word, remarkable. I want to preface our conversation with this. Sylvan and I just started talking as soon as we connected via Zoom, and the conversation sort of launched itself. I actually realized what was happening about halfway through and stopped to add an introduction because originally we were only going to talk about the work he did to help evacuate 167 Afghan women and girls at the beginning of the Taliban takeover in August. But as often happens, I asked about the team, Israel Startup Nation, and that sent us down a rabbit hole for the first half of the conversation. Sylvan, welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. It's really good to talk with you again. I want my listeners to know that there are going to be two separate conversations today. As Sylvan and I logged on, we started talking about Israel's startup nation, and we went down that path. Uh, and, and you'll hear us take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about what we were originally going to talk about, which is Afghanistan and Sylvan's unbelievable role in getting these people out of the country. How have you been? I've been, I can't complain. Thank you very much. We just had a nice week together with the team. Uh, they came to Israel. I don't know if you, you saw any reports on that. Didn't I see some kayaking? You did. They did, they did some kayaking. They did some paintball. They did some other good bonding activities. They did some tourism. We, we took them to important historical sites in uh, Jerusalem, we took them. Uh, uh, we took them also to Yad Vashem. We took them also to the Sea of Galilee. 
So we gave them we gave them quite a nice tour, and I was told feedback that I got from some of the staff. You know, writers writers are not always the most talkative people, um, but from some of the staff, I was told that in all of the years, uh, and some of the new staff in particular, in all of the years that they had ever been involved in cycling, they had never had as good an experience for team unity and, and team bonding as the one that we put on. So uh, that was very gratifying to hear. And uh, I think we were on to something. We, we changed it up. We, uh, we decided to hold the camp a month earlier than we would typically do. Uh, and that was a good decision because the riders, as we get closer and closer to the beginning of, the, of next season, they want to ride. And so here we are trying to show them cultural sites and, and, and things and all, and, they, and they're complaining to us, we need to ride. We need to ride. <laughs> so uh, we figured out that maybe it wasn't the best, the best idea to try to cram as much riding as we could together with the cultural things that we want to teach them. Uh, we want them to know Israel, the home country, because they're going to be asked questions about it, you know, when they're on the road. And I must tell you, we don't do any propaganda. There's no, uh, we don't give them any talking points. We don't, we don't do anything like that. We just bring them, show them the place and uh, let them decide for themselves what they think. And again, you've been to Israel, so you know that it sells itself. We don't, it need, does. To, we don't need to do a selling job. So that's what I like about it. And that's my experience, by the way, with all first-time visitors or virtually, I should say in my experience, all first-time visitors are all, all, always favorably impressed as compared with their preconceptions, whatever their expectations might have been. And they're, to, to a person that I've ever met, and I, and I meet them in, a, in different walks of life in my role as self-appointed ambassador, to, to a person people are impressed and, and surprised. So, so I, this was the reaction we got from uh, the newbies. Uh, and it's two years worth of newbies because we missed it last year right. due to COVID. Um, so this, this was the reaction. And so now they're equipped to talk about Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and each and every one of them, as far as I'm concerned, becomes a, a, another ambassador. And one of the things that I am pressing um, particularly with the Ministry of Tourism, who happens to be our sponsor, a very tiny sponsorship that they give us much less than we deserve, because I think we're doing amazing work for, for tourism. The more people we can have come visit our country, the better it is for us. It, it tells the story by itself, and it's better than all of the intellectual argumentation Historical justification, all of the political talk that most people aren't, they roll their eyes, they're not interested, they're not engaged in those subjects. I call, I call sports fans part of the silent majority. That's good. So you should take the team to a lot and just tell them ride north. They want, they want some riding. That's a tough ride. So we did do a couple of days of riding. We did one, one day up in the Golan Heights, which was nice. And we did uh, one a day in the, in the Judean Hills, which also was very beautiful. And, and in both places, we got to meet our fans. And I, I also um, uh, brought uh, Iron Man to Israel, which, which coincided 
not coincidentally, but coincided um, with with their arrival because I wanted to have our our team. Where did you swim? Uh, in the Sea of Galilee. Oh, nice. Yeah, and um, all of it took place in the Sea of Galilee. It was in the Sea of Galilee, and then there was bike portion, um, and then uh, and then the running was also around around the world. And uh, and there was a, f- a fan expo day the, the the day before, and they got to come and meet again two thousand of their fans, and so it was very successful from that perspective. They saw that we have cyclists in Israel, we have athletes in Israel, we have people. They have fans in Israel, and uh, that was also part of the experience that, that, that we were trying. How many of the team members are not Israeli? I mean, I know Omer and Roy. And I know some of the other people who right. are in the Israeli, you know, riding scene. But I guess I'm I'm not. I, I see the Israel Startup Nations team members. You've got some high profile people. Yeah. You've got some great team members. How many are European and how many are Israeli? Oh, we've only got four Israeli on the on, on the World Tour team. We also have a the continental team, which has. Uh, majority of Israelis, uh, I think 16 members of the team, and I'm going to say something like eight or nine are Israeli, and we've got talents coming up. We're, we're, we're you know, we're just beginning of this. Um, we're, we're developing talents to make it to the world tour, but this is not a, this is not a um, affirmative action program for Israelis. No, of course not. I just they wondered. To, they have to earn their way to the world tour. Um, and, uh, and we've only got four that, 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 that qualify. So I have an interesting question for you because I know your commitment to cycling and to your team. Yeah. And one of the things we talk about all the time on this show with people from, you know, places, well, media mainly, you know, um, people like Joe Lindsay, people like um, the outer line people is right. sponsors either dropping out or jumping off and right. going to different places or just you know, letting go of, of, of cycling altogether. I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on why you think being a sponsor of a team is important and why you're going to stick with it. Um, this well, may be a different podcast than what I started. <laughs> in my own personal case, um, first of all, I am a cyclist myself, which means I have a lot of endurance. <laughs> but but in my own case, um, you know, I call myself self-appointed ambassador, and I have many many projects, many uh, to the point where when I walk around Tel Aviv, I every single time I walk uh, in in Tel Aviv, uh, people will stop me and ask to take a selfie with me. That's how many projects that I'm doing. Okay, so. Um, because it's not unidimensional, because I'm not just doing the bike team, it's it's part of it's part of my holistic uh, activities uh, to promote Israel. And by the way, it's not just promote Israel abroad, but it's also to unite uh, Israelis. So these projects have actually dual purpose. So if I take, for example, the Giro, where we were seen by hundreds of millions of people. Um, but at the same time, it, it turned out to be a three-day national group hub, you know, where people of all different backgrounds, the various uh, religious groups, 
uh, religious or secular, men, women, uh, old, young, you know, everybody was out there on the streets, a million Israelis on the streets watching a sport that they'd never heard of, they'd never watched before of an event that they'd never heard of before, literally two days before the start of the Giro. I like to say the flip side of knowing that we're on the world stage is it brings out a, a massive interest uh, and it brought us together and it really brought us together as a country. And these, these are touching uh, stones that we can, we can have together. And it strengthens, strengthens our, uh, it's like, almost like, um, I hate to use the analogy, but it's like a war, <laughs> you know, it unites you um, for, you know, again, for different reasons. So I'm, uh, for me, I'm in it for the long haul um, because it forms part of the, the general activities that I, that I'm doing. And I would, I would suggest that um, some of the other national projects, including Astana, I think, you know, Astana's in it for the long haul. Uh, it's the government of, because now I'm competing with governments, so that's a different story. But the government there um, sees the benefit in having a cycling team. Um, and, and, uh, and likewise, uh, the UAE, whose owner, uh, Sheikh Tahnoun, He's a cyclist like me, and he's a little bit wealthier than I am. I have to, I have to acknowledge um, many, many multiple times wealthier. Uh, and for him, you know, it's amusing to have a, a team. And I don't think he has a problem uh, sticking it out. And likewise, the Bahraini team, um, it's, uh, that's Sheikh Nasser, whom I also know. And he's also, you know, he, he, he also uh, makes his money uh, through, by putting a putting a stick in the sand, uh, so so again, I think that those those projects have um, have legs. I think if you ask Jim Radcliffe from Ineos, he's got you know the endurance to, to st stick it out um, for 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 the indefinite future. Uh, prior to him at Team Sky, you know, they were you know the, the Murdochs were very. Uh, keen on cycling and they, they, they were around for, for quite a long time. So I think there's not that uh, there are a bunch of people who are, who have the endurance to, to, to stick it out more so than uh, I would say often corporate sponsors who, who can get fickle or who, who can have a bad, a bad uh, quarter or a bad year and, and, you know, and change their, change their perspective on what, what is important and what is not, uh, you know, and also the whole doping scene uh, is a big turnoff to uh, to corporate sponsors. They don't want they don't want the risk uh, associated with that. So, um, by the way, I don't want it either. Uh, <laughs> but 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 I have but I would I, I would have more control because I'm I'm not just a sponsor. I'm the team owner, and so I you know I do get into the reads and make sure that that we are selecting our our staff and our riders uh, appropriately and make sure that we never taint my brand, which is the state of Israel with some horrible doping scandal. And so uh, again, I would suggest that the corporate sponsor has less control. The only thing they can do is, is terminate their sponsorship, but by then the stain is already on their, on their brand. So uh, I, again, I, I think that um, there is a model and, I, and this is a subject uh, that, that bugs me in the sport of cycling that uh, we exist with corporate names 
meaning that each time we change sponsors, we change the name of a team. That's not a way to build brand loyalty. Um, the New York Yankees don't change their name. Manchester United soccer team doesn't change its name. You know, this it's a bad way. To, it's a bad model to, to keep changing your name every few years based on who your sponsor is. Do you think that being non-European, meaning you're Middle East as opposed to in, in the, on the continent, is offering a new way of looking at it? And maybe there'll be some continental teams that are picked up by a country like Italy or like France or like England and go after that model. It's, an, it's something I hadn't thought of till you mentioned it, but it's really a cool idea. I would suggest that Team Ineos should be called Team GB, okay? And that um, in, in, when in France where you have, I don't know, three or four uh, teams, one would be the team of Brittany, another team could be Paris, another team could be, uh, could be uh, the Côte d'Azur. You know, they could, pick, they could pick regional names. In Italy, the same thing, you know, Italy was formed, uh, was united in the 19th century uh, under Garibaldi. And you, you could have all these regional names um, for the Italian teams and Spanish teams. So I'm for geographical names because it, it works in other sports. Why do we have to be different when it comes to that? Every other, every other proper sport uh, has, uses geographical names and they stick, they stick. So I understand that we need to reward our sponsors. And the biggest thing that we can sell is that title name, um, and uh, and so it's problematic. And but but I I would like to see names that don't change. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with Sylvan some more. We'll talk about how Sylvan put the ball in motion that resulted in 167 people who were facing the guns of the Taliban being moved to the front of the line and into safety. You're listening to the Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. We're speaking with Sylvan Adams, the owner of the Israel Startup Nation cycling team and the incredibly righteous man who stepped up to put the wheels in motion to assist in the evacuation of 167 Afghans back in August. Let's talk about the Taliban. Back in August, when the Taliban began overrunning Afghanistan, I reached out to you and I asked if you had any ideas, could you offer any help? And you literally went to town and stepped up beyond what anybody would have expected. Now it's November. A lot of women and and, and uh, young girls cyclists are out. And not only them, you've done some amazing things. What did you do after I sent you that email that put you on that path and said, okay, I'm stepping up? So look, like everyone else, uh, we were all watching the news, aghast with 
with what was taking place in Afghanistan, seeing the Taliban overrun the entire country with lightning speed in a manner that I don't think anyone expected. Um, you know, I'm in the middle of all of that. I did receive your call, as you as you indicate. You know, you knew uh, Shannon Shannon Galpin, who who had worked with the with the Af- Afghan uh, female cyclists, and I mean, it just put it in such a uh, in, in such a frame that how could one not, if one was able to, how could one not um, try to help? So, uh, you know, I'm I'm I have different connections. Um, both in Israel and also in my former home of Canada, uh, I, have, I have access to different different kinds of people, and I, I started just making some inquiries um, following our conversation um, or our exchange, I should say, and um, and I quickly came across this unbelievable um, Israeli NGO called Israel Now, I was familiar with Israel uh, previously. Um, they typically do work in uh, disaster zones like earthquakes and uh, hurricanes and tsunamis and things of that nature. And they are typically the first um, NGO on the ground and using, you know, Israeli um, mobilization uh, techniques and efforts. Uh, we do have you know, everybody in Israel. Uh, we have a conscription army. And so using Using our strengths, um, uh, this NGO uh, is typically first on the ground, and they and they and they really help out in a lot of areas in the world. Um, and uh, that so actually rescues in a, a totalitarian uh, country, uh, rescue of people uh, when 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 the country is closing down is not necessarily up their alley, but. They're very resourceful, and uh, they they found a way to get operatives on the ground, Afghan operatives on the ground, and uh, and we began working on this thing. And I told them from the beginning. I said, you know, um, and the CEO, his name is Yotam Politzer, and I said, Yotam, listen, whatever this costs, I've got this covered. So um, and they went to work, and uh, and that's really how things ensued. Well, I have to tell you that every time I think about it, it it makes me cry because Shannon has been so committed to this team from day one. And, you know, they, they were so revered by people around the world. They were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize and they were National Geographic Adventures of the Year. And here they are burning their diplomas, burning their cycling clothes, hiding. And it was terrifying. So tell us the sort of sequence of events you contacted Israel then Yotam was on the ground. How, how can you say how these women got out? Can you tell us what actually happened? I actually can at this point. I, I couldn't, I couldn't have done so in the, in the days and weeks following because right. we were, we were being quite careful had families and um, we were, we've been able to extract some of their families out. We've been able also to, uh, the, the mission grew the, the mission grew to because there were other interesting needy needy groups. So, for example, there was a an Afghan women's robotics team. There were human rights workers that we, we rescued. We rescued Afghan female uh, judges, you know, who, who were in jeopardy. We rescued uh, female police uh, women, 
who else did we go? Oh, the last Jewish family in Afghanistan, by the way, which was quite an extended family. Wow. And we ended up, we ended up uh, uh, to date um, a, uh, extracting 167 people. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it was quite, it was quite a moving thing to be involved with. Uh, I, and I was involved with Yotam all the way, you know, planning and plotting and what our moves were. So how did we, how did we end up doing this? The original plan was with the first group was, um, was to take them out via the Kabul airport. This was prior to uh, the Americans pulling out um, or the deadline of uh, August 31st. And so we got them into the airport compound and then we had them on a booked on a, a flight to Germany. And then that terrorist incident uh, happened where, you know, some 180 uh, people were, were killed uh, by a bomb planted by some Taliban. And, um, and Germany decided they're just closing the operation down and, and they left, they left well prior to, uh, to, to the deadline. And so we were there, our, our, our team, our group was there without a ride. So we decided to proceed to a plan B, which was a land border. And um, uh, we went to the border uh, a few hours north uh, of, of Kabul uh, with Tajikistan. And uh, when we got to the border, uh, literally the border was flooded with, with people, with people trying to get across. And Tajikistan was, wasn't accepting any of them because uh, firstly, it didn't want to be saddled with uh, the burden of a huge refugee population. Um, so they were, uh, to, the Tajiks were saying everyone who was coming in needed to have a, an alternate transit country and they were allowed to stay for 24 hours and no, and no more. And secondly, because it was such a long list of people at the border, um, our group was way, way, way back in line. So, um, so this is when another fortuitous contact of mine uh, came into play. Um, uh, I knew somebody, very important businessman, who had done business in Tajikistan and actually knew the president of the country. And uh, with our with our girls, literally at the border, uh, next to the bridge, with the Taliban guns, literally trained at them. Yotam called me up and he said, "Listen, you need to get your friend to." And I, I'm keeping his name out of it because he wants to be uh, anonymous. Uh, he says, you, "You need to get your friend to call right now. I mean, right now, uh, because our, our our group is in grave danger." So I did it, and um, literally, he, he placed the call, and within minutes, our group was walking across the bridge into Tajikistan, and and were saved. So we were looking for uh, the transit country. We had gotten a um, comfort letter from the uh, immigration minister of Canada, uh, which was sufficient to get them into Tajikistan. But to Canada, the, is, the process is much more bureaucratic. And they need to apply for refugee status, and it's it's a, it's a long, long process. And I can fill your I can fill your podcast with with a with my frustration over how Canada uh, has been very, very slow to act. But eventually the, the um, 
the UAE heard that an Israeli group was had been successful in, in, in rescuing uh, these um, Afghan women cyclists, and uh, they want and they volunteered. They volunteered to have them come over to uh, Abu Dhabi, which is really a, an amazing thing, you know, because these are our new friends in the region uh, following the, the peace. Uh, process uh, and the signature of the Abraham Accords, which, by the way, allow me to make, a, to make a little parenthesis. I was one of the very, very few Israelis to be invited to the White House at the signing of those Abraham Accords. Um, and it happened during the Tour de France. And I literally left the Tour de France to fly to uh, Washington for, for one day uh, and because it was a, this absolutely wonderful historical moment. And here, here, were, here were our friends from Abu Dhabi saying, okay, we'll take them because we know that an Israeli group will be efficient, will have properly vetted uh, the group, and we won't have a problem with this. So, so um, they actually reached out to us um, and, uh, and became the, the transit country um, uh, for, for our first group. What a story. I'm telling you, this needs to be a movie. <laughs> it is one hell of a story. Unbelievable. We're speaking with Sylvan Adams. If you're just joining me, you need to listen to this entire conversation. It's awesome. Uh, he is the owner of and proponent of Israel Startup Nation. It is an amazing team of riders. And uh, the team has already been announced for 2022, I think, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Here is the last thing I want to talk about because your time is short. I know. I want you to explain to listeners what Tikkun Alam means, because that was one of the things you said to me almost immediately was this concept of what Jews do to fulfill a certain way of being on, on, the, on the world, in the world. So to your, to your listeners, you know, it might seem kind of counterintuitive to have some Jewish group from Israel uh, saving Muslim women from Afghanistan. And uh, I, the reality is, um, this is this expression, tikkun olam, which means literally um, improving our world or saving our world. And um, it is a, an, it's an ancient Jewish cultural imperative um, that obliges us to do good in the world, and uh, and and some one of the more beautiful parts of of, uh, of Jewish culture um, is 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 this is this concept of tikkun olam. So, I it's not when you called me, it wasn't just it wasn't just um, uh, you know let I feel bad for people. I had a, I had an obligation. Um, uh, I I felt I felt an obligation that if I could do something, I needed to do something. And so uh, it's something that I'm very uh, proud of uh, about our, our Jewish culture. And it's something which is from ancient times uh, we've been practicing. And I think it's quite beautiful that here we are a Jewish group saving Muslim girls and then being aided by other Muslims in the United Arab Emirates to ultimately, you know, um, find refuge for them. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have been able to, to do this, uh, to be in a position to be able to do it and, uh, and, and proud of what we accomplished. I know it's only a very small group and uh, you know, there are millions left behind. And this is of course, heartbreaking because 
um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the people left behind, they're terrified, uh, uh, especially the women, you know, uh, for 20 years, they were offered the opportunity, the, the, uh, they were offered opportunities and an ability to participate in society. And this has all come to an end. And it's, it must be bone crushingly depressing uh, in addition to you know, the, the fear that they, they must be exhibiting um, for all the people left behind. But here we were, we were able to help a few and uh, we weren't the only ones, although we were at the end, we were really one of the only groups that, that was able to extract uh, people from Afghanistan. When we, by the time we got to the second group, um, there were very, very few uh, teams operating, but there's still activity uh, going on in, in Afghanistan to try to help the few that we can. But ultimately, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy. And uh, and uh, I'm sorry, but when you go into a retail store uh, and you break something, you know, there's a concept, you broke it, you own it, right? And I, I think what the U.S. did in, in, in departing in such a abrupt manner uh, and incompetent manner, because, well, how could they give up Bagram Air Base? They spent, the United States spent a trillion dollars building that thing. And then they have to beg the Taliban for permission to have flights out uh, before, the, before their deadline. You know, had they, had, had they kept Bagram, you know, and if Bagram was still there, this would be a bulwark against um, the nefarious activities of, of the Taliban. And certainly nobody would be having to ask permission to be able to extract people from, from that country. So uh, I think it was both um, morally unacceptable to, to leave in such a manner. And I understand that you know, uh, the US doesn't want to stay in Afghanistan forever, but um, the NATO countries are still in, in, in Japan. After after world after World War Two, and you know, we're still in Germany after World War Two. So to, to to have left a small force and it was down to twenty five hundred troops, which is you know a trivial amount for 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 uh, NATO to to leave in there. And had they kept this asset, um, this Bagram Air Base, uh, I think I think things would have been. You know, I, I'm not sure the Taliban would have overrun the country. I'm not sure that the um, Afghan army would have been would have been frightened off, knowing that the Americans were still in the country. So I think things could have been handled a lot differently. I think it, it's morally unacceptable to do what, what what took place, and the incompetence with which the U.S. military pulled out. I mean, it just it it, it boggles the mind. I mean, throw away uh, a trillion dollars worth of investment uh, in in a country where you you know. You, you, you had assets. The U.S. is still in Okinawa, uh, in Japan, you know, after World War II. So, you know, how could they just throw away Bagram Airbus? So uh, there's a lot to criticize there. And uh, sadly for the people left behind, um, they, they will bear the brunt of it. And uh, uh, let's, hope, let's hope for the people of Afghanistan. I, I went, by the way, I went to Albania to meet our second group. Um, these are the best and the brightest. People that we rescued, they were, they're wonderful people. As I mentioned, these human rights workers and families of diplomats. We, we, we actually extracted the, uh, the family of the Afghan ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, we, we, you know, we took diplomatic families out. We took uh, the judges and their families, uh, police officers, you know, these and, and engineers, scientists, these uh, musicians, 
Um, these were the best and brightest from that country, and it, it's tragic what, what took place there and, and is ongoing. Therein lies another problem. We can't just turn our backs. It's still happening. Well, Sylvan, this is this has just been, as I thought it would be, an amazing conversation. The little tiny part I played, I've never been prouder of doing something. Actually, without you, I'm, I'm going to put it put in a little plug for you. Without you, again, I was watching the evening news like everybody else and, and not thinking about, about how I could be helpful. And it took you to put a, a fine point on it uh, that got me, you know, you said, can you help? And as soon as you said those magic words, uh, I started I started looking out for, you know, amongst my contacts to see if there was some way that I could help, uh, despite not having ever had any experience in any of this work. Um, and one thing kind of, one fortuitous um, piece of luck led to another. And, uh, and as I said, we were, you know, we got the job done uh, for, for, for the group. And, uh, and, and again, I, I, as I said, um, it makes me feel a little bit happy to have been able to help out, uh, even though it was such a small group. Well, Sylvan, thank you for the, uh, for the compliment. It, it, I feel like it was the absolute least I could do was to reach out and go, who can help us? And you did. Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your stay. When are you going back home? So I'm here for a couple of weeks and then, uh, and then we'll head back to Israel and uh, back to the good weather. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I wish I could go with you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. We'll talk again. A pleasure, Diane, as always. Thank you. All right. Take care. My thanks to Sylvan for speaking with me and for everything he's doing for the women and girls of Afghanistan, for the sport of cycling, and for his humanitarian goodness. There have been several stories that have been written about Sylvan's efforts, including one in Velo News for October 27th by Andrew Hood. You can find a link to that story on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. Let's take another short break, and when we return, I'm going to introduce you to David Lipscomb. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. At the first USA Cycling Inclusion Conference last month, I virtually met David Lipscomb and said to myself, Self, you need to talk with this man. He's got it all going on. David wears a lot of hats and is eminently qualified conducting business in each one of them. He has a broad and deep view of business and sport and competition and mashes it all up with his work at CIS Cycling NYC. I'm going to let him tell you more. Hi, David. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest today. How are you? I'm well. What's good? Tell me a good story today. It's Friday. <laughs> uh, no, no. You have to tell me a good story. That's, oh, I'm, I'm interviewing you today. All right. I'll share with you a couple stories. How's that? <laughs> okay. So we do have a lot to talk about. And I want to start with your background in cycling. I love talking to people who started out, you know, in a place like New York City, which is such a big venue, and you ride around New York all the time. How did you get into cycling as an elite cyclist? 
Oh, wow. Okay, here's the big story. So um, actually, I'm a, I'm a martial artist at trade. I, I utilized um, martial arts and cycling as my cross training. So it goes, it dates back to 1987 when I first started doing martial arts and it gave me the opportunity to, to hone in on a lot of the, the, the fitness skills that I needed to have is to get my black belt, uh, achieve my black belt in 1993. And one of the things that was so unique about that was I was able to take a lot of the skills that I've learned in martial arts and apply them to cycling. So I've been cycling since, I mean, since a young kid, but competitively since 1989. So let me ask a question about the connection that you made between martial arts and cycling. I think of martial arts as being very skillful. I know that you need a lot of skills for cycling. Where was the crossover? Oh, the crossover was very clear. Um, A lot of it is mental. Cycling is mental. Martial arts is very mental. And I think what tends to happen is we, we fall short. Of, we go through the actions of, of being fit, but we never think about the overall arching strategy as it relates to true performance. A lot of that performance is mental. So I, I take a lot of the skills that I've learned in martial arts and I apply them every day, actually, every day, all day. I think that's really, really cool to be able to combine the two. And I certainly understand the mental fitness it takes to be an elite athlete. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So when did you transition from cycling to coaching? And you're still cycling. I'm not assuming that you're not. But how did you move that into your coaching business? Oh, yeah, big story. So big picture view of this whole process that I've gone through since I uh, started my career. So I got into corporate America. And a lot of what I did in that environment was um, being a, a temporary employee at a financial services firm, um, was able to kind of see what are certain things that I've learned when it comes to human capital development? So one of the, one of the things that I I, I kind of pride myself on is the ability to understand people. So I took a lot of what I've learned in the Peloton. This is so unique. This is so, so unique. What I've learned in the Peloton and put it to the corporate America environment of how do you truly understand what teams are and how to, how to truly drive performance based on teams so I was given an opportunity that I, I would have to say I, I would not even refuse to take or or, or, or I, I took total homage in that. I was given an opportunity to become a vice president of diversity and inclusion for a large financial services firm. And what we'll talk about later is how that equated to the change from being cycling to corporate America to to diversity and inclusion. So it's like goes around, comes around. Absolutely. 360, 360 degrees. <laughs> That's really interesting because teams, so there's a, there's a, uh, a company here that I'm working with. Uh, she's a nonprofit experiential learning Institute. And I, I actually edit her podcast, which is kind of new, but listening to, to the people she's speaking with for her show, that's what she does. She works with teams and team building. So it's like it, you're not new to this concept. This is something that you've had in your quiver for a long time. Quite a long time, Diane. It's, it's, it's the, uh, I, I, okay, this is the story. Here's the other part of the story. My mom passed away in 2005, and, and it's, it's a good story. Okay. Before she passed away, she made it very clear to me. She says to me, she says, son, you have a skill. Share your skill with people. So I took that knowledge and understanding of what she shared with me and the skills she taught me to share with a lot of people. And I was given that opportunity in corporate America to share my expertise around team building, 
uh, diversity and inclusion from an organizational perspective, from a business perspective as well, and aligning a lot of what I do now within the coaching environment that I, I, I own. Um, CIS Training Systems is a, is a performance-based coaching practice that covers all areas of coaching, all areas, not just performance cycling, but business development, career development, uh, personal development, uh, all kinds of coaching in, its, in its, all its forms. Does CIS stand for something? It sure does. Of course it does, but I couldn't figure it out from watching. (laughs) Yeah, it's Current Innovative Solutions. So there's three companies that make up CIS. So CIS is Current Innovative Solutions, which is my brand, which is the David Lipscomb brand, as you can say. And there's two other companies that go with that. Uh, The second company is CIS Valued Partners, where we have a consortium of consultants that we leverage. Uh, based on um, leadership development, organizational development, uh, workforce engagement, diversity, strategic planning, human capital development, uh, uh, customer service, all types of things, uh, even technology environment as well, and truly take that same type of model and apply it to a lot of organizations that I've worked with in the past. Then the third company is CIS Training System. So all of it has the CIS brand behind it that talks about the people side of the business. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with David Lipscomb. He is CIS Cycling NYC is the website. We'll give you that again before the end of our conversation. What a what an interesting conversation. So let's just isolate this, the coaching some stuff for a second because mm-hmm. you approach some things, I think, in a really, really good way. So I'm a, I'm a professional bike fitter and a yoga teacher. But I have a really abiding interest in nutrition, and I like your approach to the whole thing. It's it's a very holistic approach, and you say so right at, right up front. Give us an overview of your nutrition philosophy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, nutrition is not a fad; it's a way of life. Okay, so when when we talk about a holistic approach to training and development, a lot of it starts with the way that we think about how we perform, both on and off the bicycle. And that takes me back to my HR hat anyway, because that's that's really what it comes down to. It boils down to is human development and the connection between how people perform. So when we think about uh, um, nutrition, nutrition is not just a fat or or a okay, amount of cut calories here, there, and the other way. It's understanding what does the body need in order to perform. And a lot of times people go through these fad diets and they say, okay, well, you know, I'm losing weight, this, that, and the third. And what they find themselves having a difficult time is they haven't really attached the mental piece of nutrition and they fall short and they go back to exactly the same behavior they had. Okay. So a lot of what we do here in CIS training systems is to really fine tune the understanding of how to truly think about nutrition holistically, not just the Okay, cut corners here, cut corners there. It's it's a way of life and how we eat and how we perform. One of your, I assume she was your client or is your client. I think she's actually in Africa. Beautiful woman, by the way, was talking about her understanding of carbs and how, what she learned about them and how people are so afraid. Oh, no, no carbs, no carbs. But, you know, without that balance, you're, you don't have good nutrition. That, that's right. And I'm, I'm just going to say Africa battle, unbelievable. What she's done in such a short period of time, she started on my program uh, February 2019, and she has truly transformed her mind and her body, you know, which is a true understanding of how she relates to how she understands herself, 
And how can she drive that level of understanding how she can become the best performer she can be on and off the bicycle? And she's exactly right. Carbs are important, are super important, especially when it comes to performance. A lot of times we say, okay, we're going to take these fad diets and we don't have any energy to do the harder workouts. When the harder workouts need carbs in order to create energy, to create effort, (laughs) you know, so... So where did you get your training regarding nutrition? Our nutritionist, uh, Nick Reichert, uh, is an amazing individual as it relates to his knowledge around nutrition. So a lot of what I learned, I actually learned from him. So I'm also learning, you know, and, and I'm actually on his program, which is so cool. So we share, he's on my program, I'm on his program. So I, I understand a lot of what he, he talks about and his knowledge around true nutrition and all of our members on the program actually given the opportunity to be able to see the impact that he has on what does nutrition mean for the athlete. Well, I did notice that you address all these different aspects of living life with different people. So I assume this is, of course, assumptions are not always the right way to go, but that if you uh, become one of the CIS training systems clients that you have access to all these different opportunities. Oh, absolutely. And that's the beauty behind what we do. And not to be boastful or braggadocious, but I will share one thing. We have the most incredible community based around people who have like-minded understanding of how to perform both on and off the bicycle. And we support each other in that effort. Those opportunities that, that we provide to our membership, it, it goes from soup to nuts. And it's the most incredible thing to watch when you look at it, uh, that it's just not, okay, you have a program, you you do your training, you do this, that, and the third, but there's no accountability uh, attached to that. But we apply accountability to the work that we do. So we're all on the same page. So we're all moving in the right direction. So we're going to give listeners a way to learn more about your coaching uh, in a little bit, but let's take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk about your role as the DEI guy at USA Cycling, which is where I met you. Kind of like in in the same format we're on right now, Zoom. We're going to take a moment here. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We'll be right back. are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with David Lipscomb. He is a CIS Cycling, Current Innovative Solutions and Coaching. And we were talking about some of his holistic uh, approaches to training and to life, actually. And I, I like that. So in addition to that work, like you need more to do, you're also the director of DEI and organizational development at USA Cycling. And I would listen to some of the things you said in that first inclusion conference. And I'm like, oh, I need to talk to him. So tell us what organizational development means in the context of USA Cycling. What will you be doing? Oh, absolutely. So OD or organizational development is an applied science. I have to say it, it's it's exactly the way it is. It's an understanding of how do you leverage the talent that you have within, okay? So it's the most important concept around human capital development, 
on a lot of times where organizations have a difficult time understanding is people have voice, people have perspective. And in order for people to be heard, leadership needs to understand how to best understand what they're saying and vice versa. And it goes up and down the spectrum. Um, organizational development also has a, an understanding of how do leaders lead, how do managers manage, and how do employees work. Um, so my charge for USA Cycling as Director of Diversity and Inclusion and Organizational Development is to get the organization to understand how it can be the best it can be, it can be the best it can be. I have a different approach as it relates to diversity and inclusion. I've been in the space for a lot of years. Uh, it was very successful in the role that I had at Corporate America. Um, gave a lot of uh, uh, presentations on the world stage at the United Nations. So I'm very proficient at the work of diversity and inclusion. But where I park is I take it from a business perspective because being in corporate America and understanding in finance, we got to figure out a way to ensure that we're driving bottom line impact. Because what tends to happen in OD, organizational development and diversity and inclusion and those who are listening that are in this, this role have a difficult time understanding and showing the value add of the work. So my charge for USA Cycling is to get a, a, a clear understanding of how to tap into the markets that we're not tapping into. Okay, these diverse markets are super, super critical for the growth of the organization. So I'll give you another example. So let's even go to the, to the nth degree. Let's look at the Olympics for a second. Talent management or talent acquisition of, of performance. If we're only looking at one pool of talent, and we're not looking at another pool of talent or a collective level of pool of talent, we can only do so much for so, bit, uh, so little time that we have. So if we have a bigger talent pool we're able to tap into, we have a better opportunity to take more people to the Olympic Games because really it's about Team USA. And a lot of what I've learned in the short period of time that I've been at USA Cycling is the team is super, super, super impressive. Like, I mean, super impressive. Everybody has the passion to do the work. I think what tends to happen as we, we get bigger and more of the, the, the understanding around what the impacts of diversity and these converging trends, I'll tell you more about those later, is how do we then leverage those converging trends based around demographics are changing, organizational development change, employee development, uh, customer development. How do we take those kinds of challenges and or trends and take advantage of those trends. A lot of organizations don't know how to do that. So my background of learning what business diversity can do for a company is super, super impressive. And, and the ability for the organization to grow leaps and bounds, what I'm charged to do. So I have a question that sound, may sound at first like it's off topic, but I think that it, it'll come back into what you were just saying. One of my concerns, and I, I have to say it's a concern, I've been looking at it for a long time, one of my concerns in cycling specifically is this tendency of the industry to drive these high prices and exclude, with or without thinking about it, a lot of people from becoming cyclists, whether on an elite level or not. So, you know, you get your first bike maybe from Walmart or the local, even the local bike shop, and you can't move up, you can't go on. And I think it is an equity problem. I think it is a diversity and inclusion problem. So from somebody who has this kind of sort of broad idea about it, how do you see 
that changing? How do you see us finding all this great talent that we know is out there? Uh, Diane, amazing question. And I'm going to answer it this way. Uh, let's go data. So everybody wants to hear data. So I'll give you some data. I'll give you some. So in 2055, the majority will not be the majority anymore. That's case in point. So what tends to happen, the middle class is going away and it has actually gone away. So it's either the high class uh, um, 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 income or the low class income. So there's no in between anymore. So what tends to happen, as you were just stating, the, the manufacturers of all of these products, and we as cyclists, truth be told, are, are, are pushing that envelope as well by all oh, the glitzy glamour, all oh, the kit's got to be this nice and the bike's got to be this, that, and a third. We've gotten away from the simplicity of cycling. We've gotten away from that. So when we look at companies that based around technology, and I'll tell you one of the converging trends is the technology drivers. Technology is driving the way people buy bicycles now. It's because of the the, the, the price of the bikes, the the the, the um, material of the bikes, the, the equipment, the the components, all those types of things cost money. So strategically, let's talk strategic. Strategically, the idea that I have in my, my mind is support the local business that can make those parts, that can make those bicycles at a cheaper rate or, or a more affordable rate to bring more talent within the talent pool so that it's affordable for, for folks. And what we tend to do is we, we, we look at the big companies, which is fine. I get that. I understand that. But what about the, the, the mom and pa shop or the women-owned and minority-owned business that, that has those capabilities of building bicycles, this, that, and the third? Go to those folks, too. Give them an opportunity to grow and, and develop as well. There's so many options here, so many options. But what we tend to do is we only look at this one piece of the puzzle. My job, I see the bigger picture. I see the big picture view. I'm like, okay, let's tap into this. Let's tap into that. Let's look at vendor management. Let's, let's look at supplier de uh, development. Let's look at all of these components to, to bring more people to the table for that, uh, for that perspective. So that brings up my question of having you parked at USA Cycling, which is not a bad place to be parked, but it does have a specific goal in mind, and that is to produce our next Olympic team. And then at the same time, wanting to reach out. And, and I mean, Rob and I talk all the time and, and to reach out to that everybody's, he wants everybody to be a member. He wants everybody to ride a bike. So I'm wondering how, how you're able to bring those two together. You know, when you look at American manufacturing today, it's limited. Some people are making hubs. Some people are making uh, um, headsets. There are people who are making rims or, or those kinds of things. But, you know, there are no drivetrains being made here in the U.S. yet. Uh, and so you wonder how you're going to – and everything else comes in from China. You know, all of the lower-end bikes come in from China. So I'm just, I'm just wondering how we get this diversity bigger so that it's no longer – it isn't diversity. It's just what is. It's business. It's the business, right? And I think a lot of times, or or organizations, companies need to look at diversity as an as an understanding of the business, not just of its gender and race. It's not just that, folks. And I and and everybody is so parked on that. And I get so I'm like, folks, there's more to talk about here to get 
organization to understand that there's a value add to this. There's a value understanding. There's a value proposition to this. That that let's open up our, our minds a bit. Let's look at a bigger picture. Let's make a pink elephant in the room. You see? Did you catch that? Let's make a pink elephant in the room. I heard it. And a lot of times we don't think that we don't. We just think it's a gray elephant all the time. It's, right. Let's let's make a pink one. There's 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 always an opportunity to change something or to tweak something or to look at it from a different perspective. I think a lot of we're also parked in this. Oh, this is how it was. This is how it was. But wait, everything's changing. So if you're still parked in that same mindset, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. Right. So what do you see as your next few steps? What's going to be coming up for 2022 and 2023 and then on into the Olympic year? Yeah, a um, couple of things. Uh, number one, most important thing is to revitalize the team and to get the team to understand that it's about, it, we can win. You know, we, we can win the game. We can win the game. Um, you know, if I look at the analogy of football, right? Um, you know, we, we might be on the 10-yard line and we're looking into the end zone, but we're having a difficult time getting there because of all these other things that are happening. A strong team can get into the goal line, could get there. And I think what Rob has done so uniquely is he has created a team and he's taken it from his experience of being where he was before he came in the USA Cycling. And he has that that mindset of, of let's perform, let's perform, because he's seen what performance looks like, you know, being at New Balance um, and and being able to, to, to really drive that model forward. And it's the same here. It can be the same in USA Cycling. So I think for, for me, the first steps is get the team revitalized, get them energized, get them moving in the right direction. Also, get them to think more that diversity is not just what people think it is. And what I've done in such a short period of time is I've gotten a leadership team to understand where I'm, I'm coming from, that it's, it's just not about what they think. It's about here's how we can really elevate this business, elevate the experience of being a cyclist. Because that's at the end of the day, it's how do we create an experience for cyclists to be a part of USA Cycling? I mean, that's to me, that's simple. You know, get away from all the complexity, go down to the to to the simplicity of being a cyclist. Everybody from a kid, from from being a kid to on their their tricycle to to an elite cyclist, there's a passion, there's a story to tell. Everybody has a story, so why not tell it? That's the first thing. The second thing is. How do we then take these level of trends? And I'm going to tell you what these five trends are. It's understanding that the demographics are changing and they're going to continue to keep changing. And if we're still stuck in the weeds and saying, okay, I'm not going to willing to grow or develop or change, we're going to lose the game. We're going to lose the game. That's number one. Number two is customers and employees have expectations. Customers have expectations. Employees have expectations. From a morale standpoint, everybody wants to hear their voice heard. Leadership has to understand, me being a part of the leadership team has to understand what they're saying and vice versa. So we're all in a team. You know, being and taking the skills that I've learned in, 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 in the Peloton of being in a team, you all have to talk to one another. We all have to talk to one another to be successful. Number three, these technology drivers, everybody wants that to be happen fast or be faster than what it was yesterday. We always want something to be fast. So technology is driving the way people act and how they behave and how they buy and how they perform. Um, so if technology is not on point, people complain. 
So we have to get those things in order for people to be included and share their thoughts and their stories around how they do what they love to do is ride their bicycles. Number four is understanding that there's market competition. I mean, there's a lot of market competition. You have, there's different segments in the United States that have these little bicycling clubs. Is that the third? Some people are on board, some people are not. How do we include more people in the conversation? So there is competition. So how do we include more people in creating some buy-in on some direction going forward? And last but not least is this organizational change. Organizations change all the time. So how do we, as USA Cycling, understand that there's change that's happening within our environment? And how do we best leverage that change that it's not a bad thing, it's a very good thing. We wanna change. We wanna be better than where we were yesterday. So one of my, um, my mentors always say to me, uh, coach, how do you show up every day? And he's, that's exactly a, a, a powerful question. How do you show up? Well, how does USA Cycling show up every day? You know, that those are the two most important things I'm going to do in the next year and a half, because it takes a lot to change an environment, to change a culture. And once that part has changed, then we start going back in, out into these markets and say, okay, here's what we offer as USA Cycling to clubs and teams and collegiate and juniors. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's so true. Well, I am very interested to watch the changes happen and to see where my participation is going to be going forward. Well, so what are you going to do this winter? I know you're still out there riding, but now it's going to get crappy. What Do you go back to your martial arts in the winter? No, actually, well, um, two things. So I, I, didn't, I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but I also write for Bicycle Magazine. So of course I you do. Yeah. <laughs> So every every week I write articles for uh, coaching and and um, guidance on on people who have asked questions on a an um, email chat forum. Pretty cool to be able to write and, and share my thoughts with people. So I'll be continue to do that. But uh, this time of the year in my business, CIS Training Systems, we we're super busy because more people are thinking internally about how they can perform with indoor training. A um, couple things to know. I was the first person in the world to demo Swift. So I, I am. Oh, so am, you know, uh, Mr. Lim, isn't that oh, it? I, absolutely. He's mine. Him and I, I'm tight. All those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He and that cute little dog of his. I do know there's a lot going on with indoor cycling. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know. You know, I'm just not a trainer person. Well, now, okay, now, here's a coaching opportunity for you. Now, All right, go for it. All right, here's the, here's the, I think, the challenge that most people have. If, if we're just riding aimlessly on the trainer, there's no purpose behind that. That's true. So if there's something that there's a goal or, or, or an understanding or a community that people can tie into, it makes that more palatable to do. Um, and I think what we've done really unique is, is we've created that environment for people to be included in an indoor environment. And it's pretty impressive what, we, what we've done um, because riding on the trainer by yourself is not fun. But when you do it in the community, it's, it's pretty powerful. New talent is being discovered through the trainer system. I, I, that I'm understanding. And that is not just in the U.S. That's kind of worldwide. Correct. Correct. It is. It is. And, and, and that way you can um, manage it and, and, and measure it um, because you can see the steady states of efforts that, that you can track uh, based on the technology and the, the data that's 
that comes out of these these platforms, you know, Swift, uh, Trainer Road, um, uh, Wahoo System. I mean, all these these actions and these these vertical uh, opportunities that people can tie into. There's so many options for people nowadays that that it's it's incredible, super incredible to see. So when you're not coaching, when you're not USA Cycling, when you're not team building, what do you like to do? Uh, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I know that's 23 and a half hours a day, but there's a half hour there somewhere. Actually, I love watching movies. I, 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 oh, yeah? I'm, movies, I, I do. I'm, I'm a Netflix guy. I, 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 watching movies and listening to music. Uh, oh, what kind of music? Yeah. Any type, but like right now, I have it on my on my TV right now. This this all types of music, all types of music, slow music, fast music, uh, uh, classical rock, uh, jazz, um, reggae, all of it, all of it. it. It fascinates me. All right. Well, this has just been so much fun. We've been speaking with David Lipscomb. He is the founder. Yes. Yes, ma'am. CIS Cycling New York. So it's ciscyclingnyc.com. You can see everything that the organization does there. I will be watching what's going on. I'm looking forward to the next inclusion conference. And uh, so we can wave on our Zoom again. And thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for including me in this conversation and sharing some thoughts. I mean, it's, it's fun. fun they to share. were good thoughts. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. My thanks to David Lipscomb for joining me today. You can learn more about him, CIS Cycling NYC, and the work he is doing with USAC at ciscyclingnyc.com. My thanks to Sylvan Adams, and of course, my thanks to you for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new show. In the meantime, I expect to eat some great food, do a little yoga, relax, and maybe even get some extra sleep. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving holiday if you're here in the States. Please check out OutspokenCyclist.com for links, photos, and a synopsis of every show, and subscribe to the podcast at your favorite podcast app. Stay safe. Stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.